going to start with a quote from a neuroscientist at Oxford, Paul Boddington. And Paul does work on AI. And I found this remarkable. This is from the start of an essay of his on artificial intelligence. Ethics is about how we relate to human beings, how we relate to the world, how we understand what it is to live a human life, or what our end, what our end goals of life are. I'll say as a physician, it's very easy for me to orient myself to this. And I don't know how many of you were here for uh, Mark's talk a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but he talked on understanding human identity in the context of thinking about AIs uh, and non-human uh, entities. Uh, and, and I'll say those concepts that he brought up then, I think are very much still critical to the way I will think about AI today in medicine. In medicine in general, in ethics, we practice what's called casuistry. What I mean by that is that medicine and medical ethics are practical phenomena. These are based on cases. And I'm going to start with a couple uh, just to orient you. So these are both patients that I encountered at some point in my own training. So the first is a 52-year-old woman. She's got a past medical history of hypertension. She came into the emergency room with word-finding difficulty and mild right facial droop of about two hours duration. I've got a few medical students here. I could, as we call it, pimp them about what this is. But this is pretty clearly a neurological phenomenon, one that's affecting the left hemisphere of the brain that's responsible for speech and facial function. For this lady, this is clinically a stroke. Now, what we know about stroke care is that as interventionalists, we can actually make a difference. And the way that we do that is by actively taking steps to dissolve clot that's causing ischemia, something called thrombolysis. And we've got very good data for this. What we know is that if we're able to give tissue plasminogen activator, which is a thrombolytic agent, within three hours of someone's stroke symptoms onset, their outcomes will be better the likelihood that they will be disabled by their stroke reduces significantly. You can see that in the schematic. The green here talks about all the individuals who will have a better outcome than they would have without intervention if they receive TPA. The difficulty is TPA is a thrombolytic agent and just as easily can cause brain hemorrhage. And in fact, for the 21 people we help, there are three people we will hurt who will have a worse outcome because of hemorrhage associated with thrombolysis than they would have without the agent. We diagnose stroke clinically. What I mean by that is that an ER doctor is talking to this patient and needs to decide is what they are seeing a stroke. This is a CAT scan of the brain. It's a modality that we look at ischemia and brain injury with. This is what a CAT scan with this woman who's had a left middle cerebral artery stroke would look like at two days. You can see this grossly abnormal area. You don't have to be a doctor to see that there's something wrong about this CT scan. This is what it looks like at 12 hours. It's a little harder to see here. Someone who's looked at these a lot could say that this area here in the territory of the left middle cerebral artery is a little darker and could say this looks like an early stroke. This is what it looks like when she's presenting at two and a half hours after her onset of symptoms. And for all purposes, this is normal. So case number two. Uh, remember back then, you have three hours to decide if someone should receive TPA or not. Case number two. This is a 40-year-old gentleman. I actually met him uh, when I was rotating on family medicine in a family medicine clinic. He's a fire <laughs> smoker. Uh, and he had a skin lesion that was found on his annual exam by his family doctor. This is what melanoma looks like. And uh, when we talk about melanomas, we talk about the ABCDs of these lesions as things that allow us to determine whether or not these are cancers. And again, I don't know that you would need to be a physician to be able to tell that any of these are ugly looking and concerning for a cancer. This is a critical thing for a family doctor to do. This is looking at survival of patients with, me with melanoma. If melanoma is discovered when it's a local disease, survival here is remarkable. This is looking at basically the number of people alive out of all comers with time. 
that survival changes remarkably if people have diffuse metastatic disease. Melanoma as a stage four, as a diffusely metastatic disease, is a terminal illness. At stage one, it's something that's curable. So deciding whether what you're seeing in the clinic, whether it's a melanoma or not, is pretty critical. Compare those four pictures that I showed you before to this, and this is what you typically see. Much harder now to figure out, do the ABCDs tell us anything? So keep those two cases in mind. I'll say those are pretty real-world, real-time things that doctors are faced with every day. So this idea of introducing artificial intelligence into medicine and trying to find ways of delineating those questions more quickly, more effectively, I think is one that engages many of us in medicine. And it's been interesting enough for us in medicine that I think it's resonated into the popular press. So. <coughs> Most of you probably know the answer to these questions, but these are all different ways of thinking about what artificial intelligences are. They all have slightly different nuances. For us in medicine, I think most of us hope for something that does some role similar to what we do, perhaps doing it more effectively. And so most of us think about systems that act like humans. And here, the two things that have engaged medicine the greatest are this idea of something that allows natural language processing, so allows one to assimilate massive amounts of data and convert it into something meaningful. And then some attempt to use machine learning to do what we do more effectively. In other words, is there a way that we can ask an algorithm to look at that first CAT scan at two and a half hours and say, we're seeing things that tell us that there's a stroke there? Is there a way that we can use an algorithm to look at that simple skin lesion and say, this is a melanoma, it needs to be excised? So there are some elements already of early AI in medicine, and I'm not going to talk about these things. Um, a lot of my colleagues use robot-assisted surgery. Uh, there are significant attempts to integrate robots into telemedicine. I'm not going to quite talk about these. There's no point showing you guys this. This is, uh, unfortunately, we won't get the sound here. Maybe I will. Let's see if sound comes. I don't know if any of you guys have seen this movie. I don't know if you can even hear it. This is one of my kids' favorite movies. One of the complications of having children is that you get to learn which companies are making children's movies that are actually tolerable to adults. But my eight and five-year-old can tell you about Baymax. So Baymax is a robot, AI, uh, meant to be a healthcare provider. Not bad for an eight-year-old. This is closer to where we're actually getting. And again, I'm sorry you won't have sound. But this is something that's close to being envisioned. You know, these are companies that are trying to sell their product. They're, they, you can't help but they're cheesy. But we live in a province where we have a remarkably large disparity between the sort of healthcare that we can offer people who live in concentrated areas and the sort of healthcare that we can offer people who live in the periphery. And that's particularly severe here, where we have a huge landmass with a relatively small population. The number of stroke centers that we have in Ontario is quite limited comparing to the need that we have for stroke centers. And there are people who live in areas of the remote province that are hundreds of kilometers away from their nearest stroke center. And the desire to find adjuncts that could collapse that distance is pretty great. This is one. This is actually something that's being trialed now in northern Ontario. Uh, it's a robot that can be controlled peripherally, but that actually has algorithms to ask basic questions and give a prep to the doctor who is the consultant on the other end. So I'll say this is big business. This is um, Accenture, uh, which is uh, a large um, uh, capital investment firm. This was their report from 2016. You can see they expect this to be a multi-billion dollar industry. 
uh, in the next few years. And they see multiple places where AIs will be integrated into medicine and will have huge impacts on the way we deliver healthcare. Partly they see this, and I think many people in the industry consider this a way of making up for shortages of physicians. And we talk about physician extenders right now as nurse practitioners uh, or um, advanced practitioners, so uh, individuals who are healthcare professionals but haven't gone to medical school. Uh, imagine a future where your healthcare extender is actually an AI. So if you look into the literature, this is kind of what I found as what many people consider as immediate places where AI will likely be involved. And I'll go through some of these things. Uh, all of these things, if you look, these services are either available now or nearly online. And it's hard to know how much of this is at the stage where it's just trying to derive excitement from investors and how much of it is actually meant to be products for uh, healthcare and for um, healthcare systems. This is getting to what I was talking about before, that one of the gaps we have in medicine, particularly with the growth of electronic medical records, is an inability to access those records in ways that are expeditious and that actually allow them to be important to care decisions that are happening in real time. You have a patient in the emergency room. They have a complex medical history. They have physicians who are in multiple different areas in the healthcare system. They're seeing specialists in multiple different systems. And now they're coming in with a problem that has ramifications for multiple different diseases. How do you assimilate that data in a way that allows you to actually make a cogent decision then and there? There's quite a bit of interest in trying to create systems that are able to mine medical records. So in other words, is there a way to access medical records from multiple different electronic medical record systems and create a cogent output? So that a computer could say to me, this is the problem list that the patient has, this is the medications that they're on, these are their interactions. In terms of probability, these are the possible things that could make sense of the shortness of breath that this patient's coming in with. And now my job as a clinician <coughs> is to assimilate that information and use it to actually make sense of a patient. We are starting, to some degree, to be very close to doing this in oncology. I'm a brain cancer doctor. Um, what we have spent the last 30 years learning is that many of the entities that we used to think as of homogeneous aren't so. 30 years ago, I would have diagnosed you with breast cancer that metastasized to the brain. That was a single entity. <coughs> the treatments that I would have considered appropriate for you would have been based on that diagnosis. I do not have patients anymore who come in with breast cancer. I have patients who come in with ER positive, PR negative, HER2 positive breast cancer with a particular nodal status based on the stem cell signature of their cancer. Their treatment is based on the granularity of that diagnosis. And there are treatments that I have specific for the person who has that subtype of breast cancer that actually has no relevance to someone who has a different subtype. We are at a point now because of our ability to sequence the genome, where our data available to understand things like cancers far outweighs our ability to actually manipulate that data. We have drowned ourselves in information. And we are looking for tools that will allow us to navigate what we know cogently. And there's a desire to do so. And a desire then to take that genomic data and use it to design trainings, thank you, design treatment plans that are specific for specific patients. So I'm sure you've heard the term of precision medicine or uh, individualized care. 
the idea of that is to appreciate the particular biological granularity of every patient and design treatments that are specific to that individual's manifestation of disease. We cannot and are not going to be able to do that without systems that basically are able to understand and ramify from amounts of data that are much greater than what we can handle. And there's desires to do that. So assisting repetitive jobs, simple things. It's time to get your colonoscopy. You need a reminder for that. It's time to get your vaccination. You need a reminder for that. There are huge amounts of systems errors that we make that have implications for patients. Seems like a simple thing, but again, a way of integrating that in a manner that corresponds to actually the patient record. This is a little bit getting to the robot that we have seen before, improving access to clinical expertise. Uh, we live in a system that unfortunately is based on unnecessary disparity. Not everyone with a headache needs to see a neurosurgeon. Not everyone with a headache should see a neurosurgeon. And the difficulty is knowing how to create the screen to move from something that's a simple screening examination to something that requires more. And it's surprising, but we don't have those tools right now. We're very bad at doing that. And um, I'll say, so as my own clinical experience, it is very difficult for me to receive consultation requests, all of which say ASAP. Patient needs to be seen ASAP. And the reason for that is that they've been found with something that requires urgent attention. The lag time, the lead up to that, typically is disarming me more. And I'll say it's very easy for me then to be critical of the family doctors who are feeding into the system. Uh, and to do so is unfair. Again, for that melanoma lesion that I showed you, if we biopsied every one of those lesions, we would be probably creating a thousand false negative results, or false positive results, for every true positive that we found. Uh, you may have seen over the last year that the FDA recommendations for mammography changed and actually helped Canada's recommendations for mammography changed as well. The reason for that is because it was found that the number of women who were undergoing needle biopsy of breast lesions between the ages of 40 and 45 was unnecessarily high. For every one woman from 40 to 45 that we were discovering to have a true breast cancer by abnormal mammography, there were 14 women who were undergoing lumpectomy, so surgical resection of a lesion that turned out not to be cancer. And when you model that in terms of personal and financial cost, it doesn't make sense anymore to screen people from the age of 40 to 45. <coughs> These are questions that we have turned out not to be great at answering, and hopefully these algorithms will be better at. So health assistance and medication management, some of you guys may be doing this already. There are apps that you can download for your iPhone um, that are poor man's AIs that are spectacular at this. Uh, and I think what, if you look at what companies have up on their websites, I don't know, how many of you have seen the movie Her? It's an excellent movie if you haven't seen it. Uh, but I think there, the, the way that many of these companies imagine healthcare being driven in the future is that you have this assistant like that who basically manages you day to day and that alerts you when something needs further attention. Precision medicine we've already talked about. This is actually an interesting thing that we are using already. Um, so uh, there's a group at UT uh, that is using a machine learning system uh, basically to create a chemical library, not only of known substances, but of, of uh, expected substances that will do chemical energetics and biologic examination uh, in a virtual manner. And you can imagine the mode that we do drug discovery now 
is based on the scientific method that we've used for the last decades, which is you create a agent that has some moiety that's biologically active. That moiety is usually based on something previously that we've known to have biological activity. And then it's tested. And you look to see whether or not it has application to what you're interested in. And you look to see whether it has toxicities that limits it to use. All of that could be done virtually. And this was particularly interesting. And this is actually being done in Europe. Uh, countries that are setting up AIs to actually evaluate the healthcare system as a whole, to look to see whether or not there are areas where there are unnecessary expenditures, to look to see where there are if there are areas that are found that have holes in care, um, to basically be um, a, a quality control system, but on a large scale. So these are all areas, again, I'll say these are all new to me. Most were new to me, but there's quite a lot of investment, quite a lot of energy being put into all of these areas. This is, again, a multi-billion dollar industry that is expected. I'm happy to say <laughs> I still have some relevance in the world. So <laughs> we're not there yet. Um, this was a recent paper in uh, JAMA of a group from Boston that actually uh, tested uh, two of these AIs that are available right now. And fortunately, doctors are still OK at what they do. Uh, I will put this up facetiously because it's a matter of time. It's a matter of time before this is reversed. So it's something we need to start thinking about. Uh, so why do we need an ethics for AI in medicine? And what do we have to fear? What's the big deal if we have these things that are going to make us better at what we do? I'm going to skip this. Does anyone recognize this? I don't know if any of you guys are. There are some people here who are old enough to recognize this. No? This is Hal. So uh, I'm not going to go through this. I'll show you this instead. This may be more relevant. <laughs> many of you may have seen this already. I, I don't think most people understand just how quickly machine intelligence is advancing. It's much faster than almost anyone realizes, even within Silicon Valley. And certainly outside Silicon Valley, people really have no idea. Um, so why is that dangerous? I mean, if, if, there's, if there's a super intelligent, particularly if it's engaged in recursive self-improvement, if there's some digital super, super intelligence, um, and its optimization or utility function uh, is something that's detrimental to humanity, then it will have a very bad effect. Uh, you know, it could be just something like getting rid of spam email or something. And it's like it concludes, well, the best way to get rid of spam is to get rid of humans. <laughs> but uh, why would we lose source of all spam? I, I know we've all watched Cal in 2001, but why would we lose control of our machines? There are no data points showing that that, that our connection to machine has ever been loosened. Uh, actually, I think the thing to do would be to plot the progress of digital intelligence versus time, and and then to you know, maybe co-fit or extrapolate that progress. Uh, and see where that leads. Um, but you're talking about machines that are not just intelligent, but have intentionality. Is that right? They have the intention of their utility function, uh, which, which is be what we programmed in, right? Yes. Okay. But it can have unintended, unintended consequences. So that was Elon Musk uh, on Vanity Fair recently. Um, so I'm not going to say that we're going to have. AIs in medicine who are deciding that the best way to treat our tuberculosis is to kill us. <laughs> uh, but, but I'll say, looking at AI, there are issues that we need to think about. And I'm going to bring up three specifically. And then I'll see if we can open this up to the whole group. So the first is disparity of care. I'm going to use US data, uh, because we, we don't have quite the same problem in Canada. But much of this is being driven in the US. What you can see here um, 
is that there are remarkable differences in care reception that are dependent on factors that should not be important to us. Race, gender, economic status, and what doesn't come up here is geography. What we know is that if you are a person of color, if you're a woman, if you're poor, if you live in a rural area, the healthcare that you receive will be inferior to that of your compatriot who is white, male, wealthy, and lives in a city. This is just reality. If you look at the gaps between average income of the richest and poorest households in the US, this is part of the problem why there is such a disparity of care for us down south. I say for us because I'm American. And to tell you, there are people who argue that the reason that health outcomes in Canada are better is not that we have universal health care. It's simply that there's a lesser severe distance between the richest and poorest. And we do a much better job here in Canada of income redistribution and of creating more of a social safety net for the poor. Uh, it's interesting, we used to say that all the time as a point of pride. And it's remarkable that social safety net or the idea of it has become something malignant in the US. It's amazing how things can change because of good politics, bad politics, but people <laughs> being good at it. This is the percentage of non-elderly adults who did not receive or received <coughs> delayed care in the past 12 months. And again, you can see, first of all, this tells us that, uh, as a doctor, this shames me. Uh, but again, these disparities have remarkable implications. I'm going to move forward a little bit. This is the one place where we perhaps made some progress in the US. The, the healthcare act uh, that was passed under Obama made a significant difference. Uh, as you know, um, Trump is essentially rolling back everything that executive order allows him to do um, because the Republicans have been unable to get rid of it legislatively. But so in the US, this has led to this interesting phenomenon. I will say as a doctor who has practiced in both countries, the healthcare that you are capable as a physician of providing in the US is remarkable. The availability of resources that you can make available to your patients is mind-blowing. And it, it probably takes its greatest iteration in what we call boutique care. And you may have seen this before. There are a number of physicians in the US who have basically excluded themselves from normal insurance programs. Uh, and created what are called concierge practices, where individuals can pay one large lump sum and basically have the physician available to them at any time. These are called boutique practices. And they're becoming more and more common in the US. And I'll say sadly, the institution that I came from in Chicago, many of the physicians who I thought the highest of have, because of at least the way that they articulate it, the impracticalities of continuing on in the normal healthcare systems have opted to do this instead. And it's quite sad to see. Now, what we know from this is that any improvement in healthcare then is simply going to be ramified more severely with this gap. So in other words, if you already have a gap in a system based on what the best can have and what the others can have, you can imagine that improvements in technology will amplify that distance. Now you can try perhaps policy procedures that maybe dampen that amplification. 
But as I showed you, every slide I've showed you so far, I've taken from a website of some company. And their goal is not to improve healthcare. Their goal is to make money. And these products are being construed in that manner. How do we save these systems money? And how do we as corporations make money? I'll tell you, it's, it is as important of a question for us in Canada. Now, I had an interesting conversation the other day with a colleague of mine named Irfan Dalla, who's an uh, internist at St. Michael's and has written quite a bit against this idea that our healthcare system is not sustainable. But the reality is that costs for maintaining the healthcare system in Ontario have escalated beyond the growth of the economy and are estimated that by 2051, the amount of dividends brought in through taxation will actually be equal to the amount required by the healthcare system. So that a friend of mine joked the other day, you know, when we're old, we'll only need two ministries in the government, the one that brings the money in and the one that pays us for doing it. You can imagine all of these things will only amplify the demand on the system. And I'll say it's, it is hard as a physician. We have the benefit of being remarkably selfish for our patients. When I see my patients, I don't make decisions based on a cost analysis and demand on systems. I make a decision based on what my patient needs. That may not always be the case. There may be a time where I need to be told, you have to put this in a larger context. And I'll tell you already, Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City decided that they would not fund a new agent for patients with multiple myeloma that cost $1.2 million a year for maintenance therapy. And they felt it necessary, the CEO of Memorial Sloan Kettering felt it necessary to have an editorial in the New York Times explaining why that was the decision that he was making. But these are, these are not insubstantial demands to think about this within the scope of the greater issues surrounding medicine. These are two more immediately relevant to AI, these two issues I'm going to bring up. First is this issue of the black box. So you can read here, one important feature of AIs like Watson is their ability to outperform human experts through what we generally call machine learning. So here's the difficulty, though. We set up neural networks that allow these algorithms to create expanding ranges of, for lack of a better word, thought. We don't have access to that. These systems are capable of reaching conclusions that we can't create connections of how A leads to E. And this is the, this is the black box issue. What happens when we are given an answer by an AI that we can't actually make sense of? Do we believe the answer because the AI told us and it knows better than us? Do we believe it only if we can deductively come to the same conclusion? I don't, I don't quite know. I'll tell you that this, this has caused a problem and some of you may know about this. So uh, there has been efforts already to integrate AI into the legal system. And one of the places it's been used is in trying to predict which criminals before arraignment are safe to let go on bail. And we've actually created AIs that run algorithms that come up with an answer of saying, this person has a high risk of recidivism, of committing another crime while on bail, of uh, escape, and needs to be kept in jail. Whereas someone else may be decided by the AI as being safe to let out of, uh, out of incarceration. This has come up uh, before. And I'm going to skip this here. But this was a case uh, in New Jersey of a gentleman who was not allowed out despite human 
indicators that would allow him to be let out of jail. He was kept incarcerated because of the decision of an AI. And interestingly, this led to, on the part of his lawyer, investigation. And 13 of these AIs that are used for this purpose across the US, their data was analyzed. And remarkably, what they found was that of the many different data points that these AIs collect in order to decide whether or not an individual is safe to be let out on bail, it turned out that what the computer had weighted most heavily was if the defendant was black or Hispanic. And the AI had come to that conclusion. If you are black or Hispanic, it is not safe to let you out. It's not a conclusion that any of us would conceive of what we would think of as an unbiased system region. And it did. And this is the difficulty. Again, we can't interrogate this. Right? We talk about explicit and implicit biases that all of us have. I just, yesterday, uh, for uh, uh, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, I'm one of their grant reviewers. I had to go through a 35-minute training about what implicit bias is and how it could affect my <laughs> review of uh, fellow scientists' applications. I don't know that you could put an AI through training to understand what implicit bias is. Maybe you can. This is actually another issue. There are times that we reach conclusions with data that statistically make sense and may not biologically be relevant. I'm going to get in trouble with Dr. Lerner, who's one of my colleagues from the big data group here. Uh, this was an article recently in Science. And we use often what are called GWA studies to try to identify variations in the genomic code that can be risk factors for disease. We call these things SNPs. All of us have our kind of our own codes, but there are things that we share because we're biologically a single species. And we do these large association studies where you may study 10,000 people who have the disease and 100,000 people who don't, and you look to see if there are variations in their genetic code that can make sense of the fact that those 10,000 have a disease that the other 100,000 don't. Again, they're called GWAS studies. If you do a nice GWAS study, you will get tenure, you get published in a nice journal. It's a great thing. The difficulty here is that oftentimes what we identify statistically as being predictors of association aren't always provable as being biologically relevant. Now that may not mean anything. What I mean by that is if you have Parkinson's disease, you may have seven genes that encode proteins that are the ones that are abnormal and that make you have Parkinson's. A large study may find other genes that are unrelated that are associated with risk for Parkinson's. What we can say is that statistically they're associated. What is harder to say is whether biologically they're actually relevant. It's very imaginable that AIs and these algorithms we use will be at the risk of doing the same, of finding associations that are statistically sound, but don't actually biologically have any meaning for us. So this is from an article uh, uh, that was in the Star not so long ago. But I thought this was pretty telling. So your doctor finds yourself in a rather existential state of mind. Something you find ironic given that it's you who is in life or death position. She tells you that she finds herself in disagreement with Watson's diagnosis. She reminds me that Watson has a 90% success rate compared to her 50% success rate in cases like this. She tells you she feels like Abraham on the mountain. She hears the voice of God telling her to sacrifice her only child, but that doesn't sit right in her gut. She also tells you that her hospital is pushing her to follow the advice of the AI, concerned that the threat of a lawsuit if her gut is wrong. After all, the evidence seems to be on Watson's side. I'll tell you as a doctor, there's a lot that I do and decide upon that's based on what they're trying to get out here. 
on some gut feeling. I try to intellectualize that at every step. But it's unfair and untrue for me not to say that that isn't something real. It's a very strange transition that happens between being a medical student and being a doctor. And I went through it, and I don't understand that. I don't still have a good sense of it. I'm lucky, I teach a lot, and I see my students, I see my residents go through it all the time. And I can't make sense of how it happens, but it does. There is something innate and very difficult to make intelligible that is at the core of being a physician. And it's hard to know what we will do when we receive an answer that goes against that. So let me talk about this. This is an identity in the social contract. This is from a fantastic essay from many years ago by um, the once dean of the medical school at McGill, who's written a lot about professionalism in medicine. Uh, but I think this speaks to something that's evolving in medicine and an evolution that will be affected by AI and something that we're uncomfortable with now and that will only become more uncomfortable as things move on. So each physician fills two roles, that of the healer and of the profession. Even before recorded history, mankind required healers. With the development of science, the healer learned to cure. This really gets to the bifold identity of what it means to be a physician. I will tell you I have found you to have cancer. I will tell you what we need to do about your cancer. I will hold your hand as I tell you that. I will operate and take out the tumor. I will sit on your bed after surgery and put my hand on you as I tell you what it was. Somehow these two things are absolutely intertwined. And the one without the other, as a physician, is hard to think of as meaningful. We talk in medicine about a social contract, about what it means to be a physician and have this role in our society and our culture. When you talk about, this is also from Ronald Cruz, society's expectations of medicine there is the expectation that we will offer the services of the healer, that we will do it with competence, and that we as a profession will guarantee that competence, that the service that we provide will be altruistic, that we will maintain morality and integrity in those decisions, that what we will do will be towards the good of our patient and towards the public good, that we will act with transparency, and that will be accountable to what it is that we do. This is what we ask on the other end. What does medicine ask of society? And medicine asks for autonomy. What I mean by that is we govern ourselves. We have our own governing bodies that lay down our rules. When physicians act inappropriately, our governing bodies are the ones who have the opportunity to censure them. And we ask for that from society. We implicitly ask for trust. When I interact with a patient, I ask them to believe that what I am recommending to them is because I feel it to be in their best interest. And when I don't have that trust, it compromises that relationship. It makes it, frankly, impossible. We ask for a monopoly. What that means is that we are acting in a place in relation to society that is allowed only for medicine. We ask for status and rewards that mean something requisite to what we do. This gets a little bit to autonomy. We ask for the opportunity for self-regulation. And we ask to do all these things in a system that works, in something that requires social construction. This leads to codes. Right? And codes of professional ethics 
rests on the premise that professionals have an adequate control over their goods and services. If you come to me as a surgeon, the promise is that if I offer you something, it is something that I think is right and that I can offer you safely. It doesn't mean that I will get you through something without incident or without cost. It does mean that when I speak with you about it, I will explain those things to you and talk to you about things like risks. But there has to be that binary understanding that I have an obligation to you and that you also are in that manner connected to me. We've, in medicine, tried to exemplify this. And when we try to do so, it becomes confused. You can see these ridiculous things that we make when we try to kind of articulate these ideas of, of what it means for us to have the place that we do in society. But I'll say, most of us are quite taken up with this. I think for most of us in medicine, we understand the specialness of what it is that we do. We understand the strangeness of what it means to try and have this relationship to people. And we understand the intimacy of it and the importance to maintain the integrity of that. So think about this now with what AI is. I'm a neurosurgeon. I had a terrible time in residency. It's a disaster to try to become a neurosurgeon. I know a few of my students here are thinking about it. It's probably the most miserable thing that you can do. Uh, it's the longest residency. Uh, it was a fantastic time of my life. It is <laughs> like it is like going to training so that you can properly be at war. Um, the system that I went through in medical school is not the same as what my medical students now are going through. In fact, we recently completely changed the curriculum because the expansion of medical knowledge has been such that we don't feel that we could teach it in the conventional way that we did. And our goal in trying to create some alternative uh, has been to try and create structures that allow our students to be facile in finding things that we can't find for them. It's quite different than the medical school that I went through. This is a hard thing to define. Our idea of what medical knowledge is has been complicated by technological advances that have turned a field that used to be about biology as the way that it was seen under a microscope to biology as it is seen using a microarray. In other words, we've moved from a field that looks at cell structure to one that looks at gene changes at the single molecule level. It's had remarkable implications for what medicine means. It affects my every day in terms of how I care about patients. And again, it's forced us to completely change the way we try to educate students and residents. That evolution with AI may actually move at a pace and with a depth and breadth that actually no longer even allows us to keep up. And again, it may put us in a position where we are considering something to be medical truth for which we have nothing but an AI to give us the assurance of that. This is going to have remarkable ethical demands on us in terms of understanding what it is to be a profession. Think of it this way. Medicine is a pretty young field. It's only been about 120 years or so that we could do things like take people through surgery that we expected them to survive, that we could do things like treat someone for an infection, uh, 
these are new phenomena. I had meant to put together a timeline with kind of critical steps in medicine. But these are things that some of us who are older still have physical memory of. Uh, that dual role of healer and curer, the remedy of that is a relatively recent one. Medicine, I would say, struggles with trying to understand that duality, in part because we've only been doing it for a century. This is going to change it completely. So far, those dual roles of being healer and curer have been tethered. And there is a real chance with AI that those two are going to become untethered again. And it will require us as physicians to completely reorient how we understand ourselves. I will say as a neurosurgeon, my students see this and have seen this before. I am remarkably lucky to be able to do things for people that bring me tremendous joy. The other side of that is that I carry along with myself the weight of often hurting people and leaving them severely disabled. I deal with that weight every day. What is going to happen when they're not human agents who are causing those elements of harm. And this will happen if we allow AIs to influence or help us with making decisions. There are times that there are going to be mistakes made. I know now. I, I take the weight of things and the authority of a mistake or an outcome that I'm unhappy with. Where will that authority and where will that blame lie when it's an AI? This is pretty much getting to just that. So ethics is about how we relate to human beings, how we relate to the world, how we understand what it is to live a human life, and what our end goals of life are. The ethics of medicine and the identity of what it means to be a physician rests upon a social contract that's built on transparency, responsibility, and trust. I hope you'll agree, AI challenges all of the things that underlie these relationships. And we need to consider these things. The potentiality of what AI could mean does not allow us to consider it neutral. It's going to require our efforts to define what the place of AI will be and what that will mean in terms of our ethical understandings of being physicians and being members of a society who need physicians for their care. It's good timing, right?